We're late for a train. 53 years late. People, they don't realise what they lost. Don't realise what they lost. My God of Almighty. The people were so happy, you know. The Bundorn Express, it was called. A train carrying pleasure seekers and pilgrims. Bound for the sea and sand of Bundorn and the fasting and prayer of Loch Derg. Oh, I think it was uh, it was the death knell for the for the town. In fact, I don't think the town has really ever recovered from it. It lost all its vibrancy and life whenever the railway closed. It pulled out of Clonus Station in August 1957, and never returned. The end of the line came. The stations closed. On occasions there was something like 800 passengers got off the train to go to Loch Derg on one day. That's... You know, you can't replace that. We set off on foot, 80 miles, in its wake, along its cuttings and embankments, in search of what happened it, its passengers and workers, the ghosts of men who built it, their stories. There was nothing that had the same sort of social connections as the, uh, the railway. The railway had railway families, people who had worked on the railway for generations. Uh, it, was, it was part of their culture and part of their of their life and uh, when those families all left something left the town some spirit left the town at that stage I think Three years on, there's not much left of it. Uh, this is Clonus, this is where the Bundorn Express became an animal that it was, taking passengers and pilgrims all the way west to Pettigo and Loch Derg and then on to Bundorn. Yes, you wouldn't believe it now though. I wonder what we'll find on the way. We've got 80 odd miles until we get to the sea. Well, leaving here, we're gonna head on up towards Enniskillen on up past Loch Erne, up into a bit of Tyrone and then up to Kesh and up to Pettigo and we stop at Loch Derg and then Loch Derg on to Ballyshannon and ultimately our final destination, Bundoran. Before we leave Clonus, we have one whistle stop to make to the home of 89-year-old Dan Kerr. Dan worked and travelled this line as an employee and as a passenger. He worked for 16 years with the Great Northern Railway. I was in, when, when I started the railway as a boy porter, and it wasn't so bad in an early late tour. I think it was about £2 a week or something. I'd be 1930 away. And uh, then I got appointed, then because a lot of them left to join the army, 
Free State Army and the British Army and the, and the railways and I got appointed permanent then in 1941 and then uh, the first appointment I got was on the lamps, the worst job in the railway. You had to walk at, uh, out down, you know where the Cavan Bridge is there, away out the Dutterbutter Road. You had to walk out as far as Lager Cross out there, you did home signal there. It was about 50 foot, you had to go up a ladder twice a week, clean the glass of the signal, take out the cisterns, clean the lamp inside. You'd only have an iron bar around you to, to, to keep you. And the post would be going like that and it'd fill it. And then you had to walk from that into the Monaghan Road, that's at the Gala Place. There was a bridge across there. And the, that was the worst one, I hated. There was a, a, a the, the inner home was up there, and it was the same. But uh, uh, you looked down, you were looking down on the Monaghan Road, the cars got in and over that side, and you were swinging like that there. And I'd done that for one winter then. As regards trains to Bundorn, well, that was a regular place. And it, it was a great place, and Bundorn was a marvellous time. After, after children made their communion or confirmation, the father and mother brought them to Bundorn for a day. The four trains go to Bundorn for a day. Maybe one coming from Cavan, you might have one coming from Belfast, you might have one coming from Dundalk, you might have one, three to come from Clonish. So you could get an early train in the morning, late train at night. And some of the boys, it was adults that time, there was a great ballroom in O'Carr's ballroom. And the fellas would go early in the midday or that after dinner, and then they'd wait for the, go up to the ballroom and dance and come home in the late train. So walking along an embankment here that's approximately 20 foot high and to think all this would have been shoveled by hand with maybe only basic steam power for cranes and that. So we just continue and see where we end up. Yep. In a moment the line arrows out of dense undergrowth. We find ourselves in a deep cutting. Earth to our left and right rises steeply. Ahead of us, all the eye sees is the path the trains took. From another era, another country. Nothing mechanical has been through here in 50 years. I stand where once a steam train beat on through the miles, conveying people and their stories, dreams and hopes. It's like an outer body experience, but the body is the land itself. And one day, the trains came no more. The lines pulled up, the sleepers lifted. We walk until water tells us to find some other way to go. Following the route of the train, we arrive into Enniskillen. Where once the express thundered on, we have a stop to make. Headhunters is both a barber shop and railway museum. We meet Selwyn Johnson. He's trying his luck on a machine that will be familiar to the passengers of the 1950s express. Actually, one. 
one a penny and another go. So when you went to Bundoran, of course, you're going for the fun and, and enjoyment and, and excitement and uh, these types of machines you would have played when, when you'd got there. And uh, there was no of uh, the electronic games that you have today. So these were the sort of things you would have played and you would have brought along your, your swimsuit. We have uh, a wooden swimsuit here that a lady swimsuit uh, that would have been worn quite uncomfortable and, and you can imagine too whenever a woolen swimsuit would get wet it might just take a different shape altogether but uh, again when you're going on the on the train you would have had your suitcase that we have here and had your your swimsuit and everything else packed um, and a journey to the seaside was something quite special and I mean you would have had Sunday school excursions and kids it was the highlight and for kids today it was probably similar to going to America or somewhere just to get to the seaside was just an extremely special uh, event. The other thing I suppose about a railway station and at the time places like Enniskillen there often would have been the last journey people would have made maybe leaving the country or going away to war or different things. That's right uh, and for some people it was that they, the farewells were a very sad place where they had the farewells at the station people going off to uh, make a new life elsewhere, uh, going off to get married, uh, going off on honeymoon. Um, so it was a point of, of happiness and also of sadness uh, and also of, of immigration. And um, I mean, it just was the central, of the central point of the community. With the train crossing borders and frontiers, opportunities for smuggling were rife. During the war years, the Great Northern Railway operated so-called mystery trains from the north into the Free State. Passengers could purchase items and smuggle them back into the North. A cat and mouse game with the customs. The, the mystery tours would have been whistled from, from Belfast and, and uh, of course people knew that the train was going down south. It was going where they could get a few items of duty-free items and bring them back so it, it was well known and of course the, the, the Great Northern that was the reason why they were doing it and they knew that it was a good chance to, to pick up on a lot of the uh, the produce that you couldn't get in Northern Ireland for a lot cheaper so the mystery really was the mystery was no mystery <laughs> <laughs> people knew where it was going um, but uh, it was certainly well uh, uh, well supported I see we have a price here for a mystery tour here 1949 leaving Belfast Described yeah. as through scenic districts in Northern Ireland and Europe. Yes, uh, and people would have been very disappointed if it hadn't have reached Terra. <laughs> it would have been a, a riot on the train because they knew that that's why they wanted they wanted to go on it. We leave Enniskillen behind. As a boy in the 1950s, Charles Friel travelled westward on the Bundoran Express. Now he's a steam enthusiast and member of the Railway Preservation Society. We catch him just as a train has been crushed. An old locomotive goes to the great engine shed in the sky. Of course, there's people just going to... There's, been, there's a lot of people... That, who used the express as a way of getting to the west coast to get to Bundoran or Ballyshannon or in my own case to get to my mother's place in Sligo. Um, that you know, that ordinary traffic, the pilgrimage traffic was big. There's no doubt. Um, 
but outside of the peak seasons, you know, um, I sometimes wonder just what the ratios were. We don't know. We know some of the big parties who went to went on the express to Pedigo to do the island, but uh, what the what everybody else was up to, I don't know. The Great Northern ran a service which two carriages came from Dublin to Dundalk. Another one was added there. It got to Clonus and a coach was added from Belfast and those four coaches were then worked non-stop through Northern Ireland to avoid the customs to Pedigo. And that started back in 1831. And it was called Bundoran Express on the timetables, on the working timetables, but it didn't have a headboard the way the later train did. As you said, it began in 1948 as a, a full-blown express all the way from Dublin, stopping when you draw it in Dundalk, and then heading across west from there. Uh, dedicated, the whole thing dedicated to getting to Bundorn. Sometimes five bogies, sometimes as few as three, and often as many as eight. And indeed sometimes running, in, uh, the river described in duplicate, where you had a, a, or two trains, both called Bundorn Express, one relieving the other, if you like, to, to just get the numbers moved which could be quite huge, especially in the early 50s. Everything moved by rail at one time, and that gradually disappeared. Uh, you know, uh, the days when, when, when we had several cinemas all showing different films, I mean, films moved from A to B by train, um, and they were delivered, those, the Great Northern, a lot of the railways were very good. They had, they had a parcel service, which was a guy with a bike, who would have cycled from Inniskillen up the town to the Ritz Cinema, the Regal or whoever, and deliver the films at two o'clock in the afternoon. They would have checked them ready for the show that night, and away they went. The next morning, back to Inniskillen, nine o'clock, throw them in, they're now going to Monaghan or Emmy Vale or wherever, and off they went. Uh, I mean, anything had to be moved, bread, sugar, seed potatoes, coal, all that heavy stuff, anything, everything moved by rail at one time, and that gradually disappeared. Even the, all the mail trains, I mean, the, 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 the railway companies had a big contract from the, from the post office and the Royal Mail to run postal services overnight and, and, and guaranteed deliveries. And hell take you if you delayed the mail. Because that, that left Dunleary Pier in the morning at half six. It stopped briefly in Amen Street. It was in Belfast for something like nine o'clock. And in those days, you could get a letter from London delivered to your there were four deliveries a day uh you let her deliver to your house say at half nine you could be darn sure that the the reply letter would be on the ladies table in london the next morning but that huge system it, it was huge in manpower and huge resources needed to but then economics took over and the people men in suits began doing sums and decided things weren't worth it the poor old great northern when the irish north closed there were all sorts of instructions sent out that every station to pack up all their furniture, all the clocks and all the tickets and everything they could think of and put them in carefully labeled boxes and send them off to Dundalk. The intention was that if we ever have to reopen the railway, we have all the kit here to do it. Mm. That lasted a couple, then, a couple of years later. I mean, the poor old Great Northern were quite sure that the railway closed in 30 September 57. It wasn't until the 18th of September 57 that the finally there was no more hope left mm. and finally the whole thing was going to have to close uh, until then they were holding out hope against hope I mean they put on in a skill in the Belfast they put on a real car service that did the journey in no time at all compared to what the other connections had been they put on all sorts of things to try and prove to the governments north and south that they knew how to cope with 
the new times that were coming. They were they were resolved they were going to close it. Yeah. When the Northern even relayed around Bundorn Junction and all sorts of places, even ported down Armagh, a week before they closed there were people earning overtime relaying the tracks. Because the guy, the management thought, if we relay the tracks, they're going to say that look, this is good for another fifteen years, fellas, you don't have anything to mm. it, just go go run. This is what's become of the Irish North, as the line was called by all the railway men and men of the permanent way. Overgrown, ditches on either side. The embankment gives way to the garden of a neat house. By today's standards, somewhere between modest and impressive. The path the trains took would have sent the engine hurtling somewhere into the sitting room and out the back kitchen taking with it assorted furniture and appliances. In my mind, I wondered as little Johnny, sitting on the carpet watching cartoons, know the great peril he is in. Better move, Johnny. The express stops for no one. A timetable has to be kept. Before the railways came, every parish priest in Ireland decided what time it was, what time the engine was going to be run at, because everywhere was different. Um, and yet some some PP in, in Cliffney and County Sligo deciding that it was 22 minutes past Greenwich Mean Time and the man in Clifton deciding it was 33 minutes past Greenwich Mean Time whatever. But when the railway come, came, that had to change because mm. you couldn't publish a local timetable. You had to say, we leave Dublin and we had what was then standard as Dublin time or in many cases called, called railway time. Um, and that became a standardised time right across. And we had for a long, long time we had Irish time and London time. So if you got off a boat in Lauren Harbour, it was a clock with two minute hands, one for Dublin time, one for London time. One was 26 minutes behind the other. Um, the railway in Dublin, the Great Northern, relied on knowing exactly when it was 9am in Dublin, A Main Street. Mm. The first train out of Dublin, the guard's watch was set to exactly 9am. And every station he went to, he gave the time to the local station master, adjusted his local clocks to make sure they were right. And that gradually spread. So by the time it got to three o'clock in the afternoon, that time it trickled all the way through to Bundorn. And they would make sure their clocks were regulated. You notice thing is listening to ready wearing and getting the pips. That mm-hmm. was that was long, long before that. So that's how they did it. We've got some really, really good walking done. A couple of miles through um through some really, really picturesque embankments and cuttings and Nature as best, broadleaf trees. And the going's good now, we're making good progress. Without realising it, we cross the frontier back into the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> to you too. The bridge is out? Yeah, the bridge is blown. The first person we meet is Aidan McGrath. Feral beams, isn't it? Oh, Jesus almighty. Mighty. That's incredible. They'd be there from day one, whatever that, 1846, I think it was, And all the sleepers and the, the track was actually gone. Oh, and they left it everything. You never find anything lying around? No. Oh, Jesus, you find on. They took everything. Because I asked the father-in-law about it. 
Aidan lives in the now restored Pettigo train station. He shows us around where once thousands of passengers and pilgrims waited to board the Bundoran Express. Listeners and outside stone wall there now. Ah. There's a workmanship in them, it's great, isn't it? Oh, that there, when I come in here first, that there was plastered up the same as that there, well, near enough. Mm. And I just took a head there one day, the slaves, just to see what was on the time. I couldn't believe it that it was all plastered over. That's unreal. Yeah. And was this, was, was this an external wall? Or? This was the waiting room. You, aye. Ah, yeah. In here now, that there was the toilets in there. And this here was the waiting room, you stood here. I'll show you here now. That there rotted away about 20 years ago, I think. But everything else was all top and they lifted the whole tracks. Uh, nice. You have a picture here of the train. That's a picture of the train there. would have been outside, just on the platform there. That train's the Bundoran Express. Yeah. That's fantastic history, yeah. huh? No, there's just out the front street there. Just out there, outside. Yeah. That's where they'll be all going ahead and plugged there. Before we step onto the boat to the island, I remember what Dan Kerr told us, his memories of the Loch Derg experience. Now, Loch Derg, the first time that I went to it was in the early 40s. It was nearly, the majority went, but they must have been worse than we were. It was all mostly women that go. And they'd maybe we have to give their, our bunks to them, please. And we'd have to sleep in the boathouse where they kept the big, big boats uh, for uh, in the winter. Now, when we went across force, it wasn't organised the way it is now. It was floods on the boats, and uh, we'd go across in that boat, and you'd be rowed across, and maybe the waves would come over, and whatever clothes you had, you were destroyed before you got there. And you had to sit out all night when you were doing the night vigil, and you had to sit out all night round and get whatever shelter you were. And it was hot weather, the midges had eat the face. Some of them have to be sent home, they come out in blisters. Or they come over and hives over from the forest. And uh, the, mid the vigil at night was terrible, you know, from 12 o'clock at night to you know, about 6 o'clock in the morning. And it was when senior ward was on it. And they always give a sermon in Irish. And should have the congregation to be asleep, you know. And he'd shout from the pulpit, waking up that person beside you there. And then we'd all get on to the train, all hungry. The hungry, they called it the hungry train. And some of these crowds from Dublin there, like the Franciscans and the Redemptors and all those crowds, they'd bring pilgrimages. And then you see, you couldn't eat anything after 12 o'clock the following night. This is what you do? This is your job, driving the boat, is it? Or? This is my job, yeah. And preparing for the busy June season? Yeah, starting up on Tuesday. Tuesday is the three-day Purgatorium Sancti Patrici reads the steel archway we travel under to reach Loch Derg. The island reveals itself, its true nature. It briefly takes our breath. It's not unlike a fortress. Three days before the start of the pilgrimage, the reception is empty of people. Some phone calls later, a boat engine is heard starting in the distance. 
the diesel engine now does the job of 12 men. First impressions couldn't be any different from what we'd expected. The sun is warm on our skin and the breeze is fresh. The place is quiet. In effect, we are alone. In the same way I try to imagine our abandoned train line in its former glory. I try to imagine the 300 pilgrims who will be here in three days' time. Barefoot, hungry, tired. But despite this, we'll leave here at the end of three days with whatever they were looking for. We shed our well-worn boots and far from bin penance, the sun-kissed slabs energise our souls. It's terrible, isn't it? All those trains gone. Donal is one of the many helpful guides at Loch Derg. We have people from Australia, America, um, Europe, uh, the UK. We have quite a lot of visitors from each year. Um, some of the African countries as well. Uh, Brazil, Argentina. So they do come from, from quite a distance. In terms of uh, age group, what would be the youngest pilgrim? And maybe 15. 15 is the age limit. We, we don't go any lower than that really because of kind of health maybe restrictions and just you kind of when you're younger than that you can't really maybe appreciate what Loch Derg's really all about and and what in terms then an upper age limit is as old as you feel as old as basically yes as old as you feel that you're able to to meet the challenges of the pilgrimage I suppose you know we have people that come and they're well into their 80s so we just if, if they're able in themselves to do it they're not turned away so fair play to them <laughs> exactly yeah so uh, with the sun shining, the, the stone was nice and warm. I had to say I had this vision of uh, cold, wet stone and stubbing your toenails. and This isn't bad at all now, but I'm sure on a cold, wet day it's a lot different. I think we'll go for a walk around the basilica in our bare feet and see how we've stood up to the test of Loch Derg. There's some... Th- Ow, thistles. Jesus. Sorry, I shouldn't be saying, taking the Lord's name in vain. Before we leave the island, a story is recounted to us. Shortly after the closure of the Irish North and the lifting of the tracks, a solitary pilgrim made his way along the very same cuttings and embankments to Loch Derg on his own personal pilgrimage. Maybe he knew what was being lost, in a way most of us don't. We only realise it after the fact. So we are on our way to Balik, and we've been walking for about uh, one, three, four miles, about four miles so far across country. And some beautiful sections through stone that was blasted either side to make way in. And we've come to a gorgeous bridge here with ornamental wrought iron. And my God, we've sections. We have sections of a railway. <laughs> this is extraordinary. This is really, 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 really cool. It's an amazing landscape here. We're up in an embankment, a really, really, really tall embankment. We're kind of converging with the road here. Figure of eight, wrought iron work, either side of this bridge. And we're actually, we do well to walk actually on the, on the middle of it, on the iron or the steel beams, because 
that wood that we were walking on these sleepers is kind of I'd imagine they could be quite rotten. Jesus, a long way down. If you, if you if you did go for a tumble, you're itching to walk across it. Yeah, let me have a look at it from this angle. To cross or not to cross, Brian? Oh, cross. You sure it's not going to be like the Cassandra crossing or anything like that? Brian? No, we'd be hundred percent. There's underneath these is steel pillars. Yeah, there is. <laughs> I love what the way you say that as you start across. Just looking, trying to read the inscription on um, on some of the steel bits that are forged here. I think that was dated 1912. You see, the trees have actually taken root on the middle of the the bridge. They're actually growing on timber. Onward. I'm across the frontier. So, uh, it's somewhat typical of this country in the most, one of the most beautiful settings we've come to in the whole walk, like a mini canyon, and we come to a railway bridge and somebody has used it as a dump, all sorts of waste. Charming. An inventory of an Irish dump on the Irish North Line closed in 1958 and we have the following items dumped. A tricycle, a toaster, a wheelbarrow, a bicycle, an ironing board, a door, a bread bin, some tins, a coal bunker, some oil drums, plenty of black bags, and some empty buckets. Ballyshanna. The sea comes into view where the urn empties into Donegal Bay. Excitement and anticipation for those on the Bundoran Express. The same for us, despite our fatigue. Tiring like us, here the line seems to give up. Out of Ballyshannon, a bypass has rode roughshod over our Irish north. It fades in parts so much as to lead us to question the path the train took. A solitary erratic rail bridge cropping out of the bypass, as if pushed by some glacier, confirms its route. We stand under its arch, traffic zooming, screaming out its message. You belong to the past, you're obsolete. The bridge has stood 100 years, the road 10. This is the tunnel that Dan Kerr said. You had to have your move made. If there was a particular girl you fancied, you had to be sitting beside her before you came to this point. Because you were plunged into darkness for a very few moments. Uh, I'm just going to see from up here. 
Uh, again, probably a bit boggy here, so. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Uh, now, first of all, just to let you know, I'm completely immersed up to my knees in muck here. If you take the equipment, yeah. I'll get out. God knows how that, how deep that goes like. Have you ever seen a cowboy movie and you've seen someone sinking into quicksand and having to stay really still or they go, uh, they go down and down and down and down? Well, that's just what's occurred to me on the far side of where this tunnel would have came out. It looks just slightly boggy, but you wouldn't guess it to be uh, the quagmire that it is. And from both my knees <laughs> down, I'm completely covered in the foulest smelling muck. We're walking here and we're uh, on the Bundoran Bypass or the Valley Shannon. We arrive into Bundoran and it's hard to tell where one housing estate begins and one ends. Higgledy Piggledy goes some way towards describing it. Some unfinished houses, pallets of blocks and corrugated containers stand sentinel, as if time has stood still and a great virus has swept the land. So-called progress is its victim. We've travelled a century and 80 miles in five days. We've looked into the minds of pick-wielding men, their every sinew tuned to the task of building the permanent way. All gone now drivers and firemen of the steam locomotives under their hand the feel of a living beating steam engine knowing the rhythm of the pistons connected to this giant all gone now the passengers all gone now living memory is passing into history the physical railway is passing into archaeology But a lot of crowds, a lot of crowds used to go to Bundoran and stay on, on, on Bundoran and then uh, come back and do luck there before they go home. That's true. After they carried on, I suppose. <laughs> there was a driver in Bundoran. I'm not telling you who he was, but he got a pious turn and he did. He said he would do the island. And uh, he was on the island on the second day, anyway. And the priest was going around talking to people, and he recognised him. He said, "You're here, driver. You see, you bringing the train through here. You do indeed fine." And chatted away about one thing or another. And then he looked down. And the priest said to him, "You know," he said, "you're supposed to do this in your bare feet." But this guy had a reputation of washing himself too much. He said, "I'm oh, a father. I'm in my bare feet." <laughs> <laughs>
and the way it used to thunder past there with the sparks and the smoke and the steam and all that flying out, it was quite, uh, quite scary at times if you didn't get off the track in time. We were never actually burnt, but of course many's a, many, many's a cutting was burnt out because of the smoke and the, star and the um, sparks and that kind of thing. But like it was a great sight and it was a, a very memorable thing too. And then arriving in Bundorn and uh, never really lived up to its expectations. <laughs> the, the train journey was, was more... The train journey was more exciting than the actual destination. And then you could look forward to the journey home as well. So. Some things stayed the same. The same tides ebb. And here and now in Bundorn... The same pleasures await us, as did our express passengers. Stout, black and cold, needs a drinking. There's gambling. Where sand meets water is to be felt underfoot. And the jump into the Atlantic from Rogi Cliff is daring us to be attempted. The express has arrived once more. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.